Hey there, listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of E Pluribus Unum. Today, we are talking about last week's Parsha, which is Parsha Vayishlach. And in that Parsha, Jacob and his wives and children are finally leaving Jacob's father-in-law Lavan's house. He was there for 20 years after he married Rachel and Leah and then worked again. He's finally leaving. And on his way, he is going to encounter his brother Asav. So you have to think back a couple of weeks when we last saw Asav. Maybe that was just two weeks ago. Time is very funky in COVID. I think that was two weeks ago. And in that Parsha, we learn about how Isaac intends to give the birthright blessing to the eldest son, Asav. But Jacob gets the blessing because Jacob had purchased the birthright from Asav some years before that, but Isaac is intending to give the blessing to Asav, but Jacob takes it and then Asav is enraged and threatens to kill Jacob, which is why Jacob flees to his uncle and then becomes father-in-law, Lavan's house, but now finally Jacob is leaving. And even though it's been these 20 years at least, Jacob is worried about encountering his brother Asav as they travel because he does not know what sort of rage has festered in Asav. And on the eve of encountering Asav, Jacob prays to God and says, deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, else I fear he may come and strike me down, mothers and children alike. Yet you have said, I will deal bountifully with you and make your offspring as the sands of the sea, which are too numerous to count. So this is an idea that was sort of in my head. And then I read the Parsha and then I was reading Dennis Prager's commentary and it all just work together so well, which seems to happen so often that there's a question that I have or something that I'm unsure of. And then in that week's Parsha, there's an answer. And I don't know if that is providential or if it's just an indication that the Torah really does deal with the human condition so completely that any one of us can find the answers that we're looking for within its wisdom. So as Dennis Prager brings up with this, believers are allowed to have doubts. How does he get that? So here is Jacob who's asking to be delivered or to be saved, you know, from Esau's wrath. But God's already promised Jacob that he's going to be, you know, a father of multitudes and that that he, God, is looking out for Jacob. So why does he need to ask God again to be saved when God's already promised it? And as Dennis Prager points out, he has doubts. People have doubts. Even the strongest believers have doubts and there's nothing wrong with having doubts. There are some people who are blessed with having a complete and full faith. Like for the rest of us, we have doubts. We have the Torah and other canonical stories, or if you're a Christian, the second half of the Bible, whatever, maybe there are miracles, stories that you've read or spiritual leaders. So there are a lot of things that would really clearly indicate to you, not just God's existence, but that God operates in the world and that he created the world and still has a hand in it and that he has a hand in our own lives. But we don't have proof, you know, in your face, God waving a big red flag saying, here I am or anything like that. So for us to have doubts is very natural, especially because the world is really hard sometimes. And there are sad things and tragedies that we don't understand, but we know that God is good. And because we are humans and don't have the infinite wisdom and understanding of the world as God does, it's really hard to reconcile terrible things with the existence of God. So the fact that we have doubts from time to time or possibly all the time is totally reasonable. But here's Jacob who God came to him in a dream, right? And I would imagine 
his father and his grandfather that he heard stories about their encounters and how they spoke with God. So you would think when you have such proof that you wouldn't have doubts. But I think this story is amazing because it shows us that even with proof, people still end up having doubts, which just shows how universal the idea of being unsure about what God is and what he does that it's just so natural. And later, this is in Exodus, so it's a little bit later, but think about the Israelites who were slaves in Egypt, and then they're released. They're freed after 10 spectacular plagues, the parting of the sea, and then they receive the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And still, those Israelites forgot God, you know, had questions and weren't sure and were always testing Moses and testing God about whether or not he could really do all the things that he said he would. And those people had the most in-your-face proof. And it wasn't just one person's proof. Like here, it's Jacob, but he also, it was just him or maybe, you know, stories from his father and grandfather. But just as we can rationalize our own actions, it's also very easy for us to rationalize things that seem supernatural. Okay, so Jacob, sure, he might have had these things, but he's one person. But the Israelites were 600,000 people, and that was just the men between certain ages. That didn't include the women and the children and the elderly. And they had all of these very clear signs and wonders, and they still had doubts, which just, again, goes to show how normal it is to have questions and that it's okay to have questions. It makes you, it just means you're human and that you're thinking, and it's good to be thinking. God doesn't want us to just follow things blindly and just do what he says. Certain things he wants us to do because he asked us to, and maybe we can't fully understand why. Fine. But generally speaking, God wants us to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and not to do things just because we're told to, because it doesn't really mean so much to do something. It just shouldn't say it doesn't mean so much. It doesn't mean as much to do something just because you're told to as it does to do something of your own volition, right? Like if your mother asks you to take out the trash and you take out the trash, that's very nice, of course, because you listen when your mother told you to do something. But it's so much nicer and it shows it's a greater indication of your character if you take out the trash before even being asked. And in fact, this is one of the reasons God sort of can't prove himself to us in the ways that people say, oh, well, if God just showed me a miracle, then I'd believe in him. First of all, we've now seen that even the people who did see miracles directly from God or spoke to God or had visions, even those people had doubts. Even more so, as Dennis Prager and I think other people also have pointed out, if God reveals himself as, here I am, here are all the things that you need to do, we don't have free will anymore. Or not in the same way, because if, because if God is right there and he says, okay, do this thing and you get this reward or do this thing and you get that punishment. You don't have the same level of choice to do good or bad because you see the punishment right there. So God can't reveal himself to us in the ways, and you know, maybe we're all thinking, you know, split a sea or a plague of locusts, but who are we to say that God hasn't revealed himself in our lives? How many interesting coincidences have happened or anything that we think, you know, people use the term miraculous, but then it can be maybe explained with some sort of human or scientific explanation. But a lot of things, who's to say that God isn't the one behind it? I guess if you don't want to see God in your life, then you don't attribute it to it. And there's another explanation that we can attribute it to. But if we want to find God in our life and find miracles, we definitely can. Which brings me to the question that I originally had and that 
was then sort of answered by this Parsha. And I don't remember why this question came into my head recently or, or what prompted it, but people do ask all the time, how can there be God? How can a good God allow there to be such suffering in the world? Childhood illness, starvation, rape, murder, genocide, whatever the thing is. How can, how is it possible that there's a God in the world who can allow such bad things to happen? Clearly, there's no God. That's one side. And that's a totally legitimate and reasonable thing to feel. People have got, who have gone through incredible tragedies or who see all the pain and injustice and suffering in the world, it's so natural to have those doubts and question God. But what I was wondering is, do people ever say the opposite and say, how wonderful must God be for there to be these beautiful mountains, the kind strangers who help each other, beautiful music. That must be an amazing God if all these good things are in the world. People who believe in God do that, and I think that's intellectually honest. If you believe in God and then you see the good and the bad, and then you can ascribe the good and the bad to God, or you can ascribe the good and the bad to people, or at least you have questions about it, and questions are fine. But it does seem like people who are asking the question of, oh, how can God exist if the Holocaust happened? Those are people who are just trying to question God's existence, but they don't do the intellectually honest thing of saying, okay, assuming God is some vengeful, wrathful being who allows all these bad things to happen, or there's no God, but then I don't think people like that look at all the good. They look at, you know, rivers and, you know, they see some transformation over millions of years of water and erosion and things like that. But isn't it at least as intellectually honest to ask the question, well, there's all these good things in the world, so could those good things also be from God? And maybe the bad things are from people. Believers have doubts. The question is, do non-believers have doubts? And it's an interesting idea that Dennis Prager brings up all the time when people call in or ask questions of him that, and they'll say they're raising their kids to be open. Like they're not raising their kids in a specific religion. They're raising them to be open to any religion. And then Dennis will ask them, well, are you taking your kids to church or to synagogue? And they'll say no. And he says, well, then you're not technically, yes, you're giving them the option because you're not saying you can't be this thing, but if you don't expose your kids to something, then then you're not really raising them in any particular way. And I think the same thing here, if you are really questioning God when there's bad things, then you have to be open to God when there's good things. Otherwise, you're just complaining about bad things. You know, we all hate that there's suffering and pain in the world. Believing in God isn't easy. Being religious, it's a struggle, which is further interesting, more interesting, continues to be interesting, also interesting. Anyway, it is interesting that later in the Parsha of Vayishlach, Jacob is renamed Israel, Yisrael. And there are different meanings for the word Yisrael, but the most, I don't want to say accepted, but the, the most usual translation, how that breaks down is struggle with God. So Jacob, before he meets Esav, ends up struggling with an angel, a messenger of God, and the angel uh, tears Jacob's sciatic nerve and then says, now you will be named Israel for you struggled with God. And then God later in the Parsha reiterates that fact that indeed Jacob is renamed Israel. And so it's this struggle with God. And again, that's a very interesting concept because I think a lot of people who are not religious look at people who are and think, oh, there's just, it's just a blind faith. You have all these rules and you just listen to them, you know, God tells you what to eat and how to sleep and what holidays and all these things and, and you just pay attention and you don't think about it. But that's not true. Religious people struggle. And in Judaism, we're encouraged to struggle and to ask questions. If you have any familiarity with Jewish learning, 
I mean, it's, it's questions. There's always questions. And that's why Jews make really good lawyers because you really have to study and learn and things are not always what they seem right on the surface. And even if one meaning is on the surface, there are 70 other meanings that there could be. So we're allowed to struggle with our faith and with God. Remember, Abraham struggled or argued with God when God threatened to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham said, well, what if there are 50 righteous people? Would you destroy the cities? And God concedes, no, not for 50. And then they barter down. And eventually God destroys the cities because they couldn't find the requisite number of good people. Sodom and Gomorrah were bad places that needed to be destroyed, like vile places that needed to be destroyed. But there's this idea in Judaism of struggle. And I don't know if it's similar in other religions, this idea of being in conversation with God and being in conversation with your own faith. But it is important in Judaism. And I do think that if one really gives oneself the opportunity to question, but then to truly look for answers, not to just doubt and say, I'm not sure about God, but to say, I'm not sure about God, let me go find the answers. It's going to make your faith stronger. You're not just believing things because someone told you to, but you're also not disbelieving things just because you feel a certain way. You're really, you're using your mind and your intellect. And then also, yes, a little bit of heart and faith because religion is not without those. It's very intellectually rigorous job being a Jew and being someone of faith and truly being committed to your faith. One last thing on last week's Parsha, just because it's interesting. So again, Jacob struggles with the angel and his sciatic nerve is cut. And because of that, Jews to this day do not eat the sciatic nerve of a cow. It's considered unkosher. And it's just interesting. In Judaism, we have mitzvot or commandments that cover a wide range of things. Some of them are moral. Do not murder. Do not steal. And then some of them are rituals that we do. Lighting candles for Shabbat, making a blessing over a cup of wine before a holiday. So some things are rituals. And there are some things that we do because it just preserves our national memory and who we are and where we come from. Like we eat matzah on Passover to remember the Israelites who had matzah when they left Egypt. And so the sciatic nerve just falls into that category of this is something that happened to Jacob and it was when he was renamed Israel. And of course, then Israelites and B'nai Yisrael is one of the Hebrew terms to describe the Jewish people. So like, it's a big deal, this struggle with the angel. So we commemorate it. We still don't have the sciatic nerve. I don't know if that area of the cow is delicious. We miss out on a lot of probably delicious things when you keep kosher, but there's also a lot of delicious kosher things. So anyway, that is all for last week's Parsha. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to E Pluribus Unum. I hope today's episode made you think or brought some clarity and positivity to your day. Subscribe to the show to always get the most recent episode directly to your device. Please leave a rating and a review and share the show with your family, friends, or anyone you think might benefit from a little Torah wisdom and conservative thoughts. For more of my thoughts and ideas I share from others, please follow me on Instagram at conservativejewishfemale or read my blog conservativejewishfemale.blogspot.com. The intro outro music is Chopin's Waterfall Etude. Have a great day.